0: Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. Real quick, did everybody get one of these? All right, everybody got one of these? Good deal, good deal. Um, I heard one person say one time that the more important the person, the least, the the less the introduction, like when the president walks out, what do they say? The president of the United States, and that's it, right? So this is Todd, he's a friend of mine. Uh, Todd and I have been friends since I was in college, I guess like just a few weeks after I was baptized. Yep. Um, So, He's from Burleson Church of Christ, which is in Hamilton, Alabama, which I always joke, if you are trying to get to Hamilton, go west. When you think you're in Mississippi, you're probably in Hamilton. So it's, it's right next to the Mississippi line. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to him and let him have as much time as he needs. We usually go to about 10, 15 or so. Okay. I'm going to go try to fix this door so that doesn't All right. It is good to see all of you this morning. It's great to be here, and uh, been looking forward to this for some time. Um, I think last night was the third night I've ever spent in the state of Georgia uh, and Just just never had opportunity I, I, First time I ever preached in Georgia was a, a year ago, October I was at the uh, at the 1R Forest Park in Atlanta You know, there's the 1R Forest Park in Atlanta And then there's the 2R Forest Park in Valdosta I was at the 1R Forest Park Where uh, uh, Steve Vice and, and those brethren were having their uh, missions for them And we've had a relationship with them for about 50 years and uh, enjoyed my time there and I look forward uh, to being with you uh, this week. Um, I'll probably say a little bit more of a personal nature maybe uh, before the services this morning. Uh, But uh, before we get started, let's pause just for a moment, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get uh, into our study. Our grace heavenly Father, we are thankful to Thee for the beauty of this day. Father, for the beautiful sunshine, the, the beautiful weather, Father, for how it lifts our hearts for, to be thankful to Thee for all of Your gifts to us of a physical nature. Father, we're especially grateful and uh, most mindful of our spiritual gifts that have been given to us uh, th- through Thy Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful uh, that uh, we can be called Thy children. We can thankful, be thankful that our worship is accepted, our prayers are heard, and that Your providence is active in our lives. And Father, we have so many other blessings that we know uh, and think of from time to time, we thank Thee for all of them, grateful for your mindfulness of man. Ask your blessings on us as we study about your Son this day in Jesus name. Amen. I said this morning, I was talking to some folks said I have a twofold, I have a twofold uh, thrust or plan uh, for preaching today. I'm going to tell you who Jesus is, and I'm going to tell you what Jesus said. That's my plan. And so we're going to talk about who Jesus is and uh, hope that that everybody has a handout. Um, uh, I like to use handouts. I think they're very helpful. I've been using them for over 20 years at Burleson. Uh, It helps us kind of stay on track. It helps people have something to follow, uh, to take notes. Does anybody not have one? Lee has disappeared on me. We'll, We'll get them from Lee when he comes back in. There he goes. All right, Handouts. And uh, and so um, and you can make notes and it, it I, I just found them quite helpful through the years and so uh, we'll have a handout uh, this morning in Bible class. There will not be one in the morning uh, worship assembly, but we'll, Lord willing, have one uh, in our afternoon assembly. But I want you to think about a, a text. And it's kind of the, the the text that the thought comes from that titles our lesson this morning. Jesus never won like him, and the thought or the text that brought this thought to me is John chapter 7 and verse number 46 where men had been sent by the Pharisees to take Jesus into custody. But during the course of that, of that uh, assignment, they heard Jesus speaking. They heard Jesus teaching. They heard Jesus in His interchange with those that were speaking Uh, with him and to him and about him, and they were so astonished with his his wisdom and his teaching that they went home empty-handed. And when they got back to those that had commissioned them to take him into custody, they said, Why have you not brought him? And here was the answer. Never before has a man spoke like this man. Never before has a man spoke like this man. And so with that thought in mind, I I was thinking, you know, there are a lot of things that we could say about Jesus never before, never before. And so that's where we're going to go today in our study. And if we have time, hopefully we can get through all of this material. But to go all the way back to the beginning, we would say, number one, never before was a man born like Jesus was born. Now when I say never before has a man been born like Jesus was born, I'm not simply discussing or thinking about the idea that Jesus was born by means of a miracle. Because we know that there are other people, other uh, women in Scripture who gave birth to babies by means of a miracle, right? I mean, Abraham and Sarah required require divine intervention for, for them to conceive and bring forth uh, uh, Isaac. And so that was a miracle. Uh, probably, uh, probably in the case of, uh, of uh, uh, the woman uh, that helped Elisha, she was childless. And, and then the next, and when they tried to help Elisha, built him a room on their house, a place for him to, to rest and to sleep and to study. And he said, at this time next year, you're going to have a child. I believe probably divine intervention, obviously divine intervention there. What about John the Baptizer? Obviously born, obviously born by means or conceived by means of miracle or divine intervention. So I'm not just talking about the miraculous nature of the birth of Jesus, I'm talking about specifically that Jesus was born of a virgin. Never before has a man been born like Jesus was born. Now, even given the technology that we have today, it would be possible for a woman to be a virgin and bring forth a child. And so now we've got to go even a little bit deeper than that, don't we? That never before was a man, anyone born like Jesus because the Bible says that Jesus was born apart from the seed of man. Now you might might fertilize an egg and implant it in a woman who is a virgin and she might bring forth forth a child, but that child would not be born separate and apart from the seed of man. And that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God said uh, uh, said to, uh, to, to the devil, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Her seed. In Galatians chapter 4, the Bible says in verse 4, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Born under the law, made under the law, born of a woman. In other words, completely separated from any influence of the seed of man. By man, I mean a male. And so even if one wanted to argue that a virgin could could bring forth a child today... It would still require the seed of a man. And Jesus was born completely separated from the seed of a man. So no one was ever born like Jesus. But then, number two, no one ever did live like Jesus. No one ever before lived like Jesus lived. You know, we sometimes use the word perfect or perfection. In our English language in the common vernacular to describe sinlessness like we say well nobody's perfect and what we mean by that is everybody sins nobody is above sin but one thing that I think is interesting about the way the Bible describes Jesus and his sinlessness is the Bible never uses the term perfect to describe sinlessness never never you know what the Bible says when it wanted when, when the Bible when God wanted to tell us that Jesus never sinned. You know what the Bible says? He never sinned. Just come right on out and set it. In 1 Peter chapter two, you know, it talks about uh, that uh, 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 Christ uh, knew no sin. You know, he did no sin. You know, no, he did not sin. Neither was any guile found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians five and verse. Uh, 21. God made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Or Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are, what? Yet without sin. If the Bible won't say Jesus didn't sin, it didn't have to use any, it didn't have to use any descriptive statement. It just come right out and said it. He never sinned. Now I want you to try to, I want you to try to wrap your head around that just for a moment. By the way, as I get into this, let me ask you a question: Is there anything that you think about or try to think about, and when you do, it makes your chest get tight? Like I'm not claustrophobic, but the thought of not being able to move. A part of my body makes my chest get tight. I get, I can feel my blo- heart rate go just by thinking about that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I tell you, I'm so, I'm so crazy about that that I rarely ever tie my shoes. Now it's not that they're untied; it's just that my shoes are loose enough that I can put them on and take them off without having to tie. Them. Now, that's how loose I want. I want to be able to wiggle my toes. If I can't wiggle my toes in a pair of shoes, I don't buy those shoes. Right, so, so you understand what I'm talking about. I start thinking about things. The, the thought of the, that type of thing just, just makes my heart race. Thinking about eternity does the same thing to me. You, know, you start trying to think about eternity. Now, we start th- now, look, as humans, when we think about eternity, we think about it going forward, Right? And we sit there and we try to think about what heaven's going to be like and it's like, well, there's a million years but that don't begin to touch it. So then you you start like, man, that's hard to think about. Well then, run that thing backwards. Because Psalm 90 in verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. So if it makes your head hurt trying to think about eternity going forward, try to think about eternity going backwards. That's hard to wrap your head around. Now, I would submit that trying to think about the sinlessness of Jesus is is just as hard. Think about—I want you to think about the absolute sinlessness of Christ. Jesus never did anything that he had to repent of. Jesus never pillowed his head at night and looked back on the events of the day and said you know I wish I hadn't have done that has that ever happened to you? you lay your head down and you think about the events of the day and you say I wish I hadn't have done that that never happened to Jesus now let's ratchet it up a little bit Jesus never said anything That he had to think about later on and say, I wish I hadn't said that. That's a tough one, isn't it? Ever happened to y'all? Have y'all ever said something and about the time the the words got right about here, you wished you could grab them up, you know, and, and cram them back in your mouth? But as the old saying is, you can't unring a bell. Never happened to Jesus. Jesus never sat down at the end of the day and said, you know, I wish I hadn't have said that or I wish I hadn't have said that like that because sometimes we can say things that in and of themselves are not, are not wrong or sinful but the way that we say them can be wrong never did happen to Jesus not one time now let's crank it up a little more Jesus never let one thing. Thought get in his head that was inconsistent with the will of God. What you to think about that. It might be the case that through the course of a day that I might be able to conduct myself in such a way as to not sin in any way that anybody could be cognizant of it and that I might get through a whole day without saying anything that was sinful or said in a harsh or unkind or unloving way. In other words, nobody would know that. There ain't nobody knows what's going on inside my head. Isn't that right? Nobody knows what's going on inside my head. Nobody knows what, what I think about when I see a thing. Or something happens to me. Like some knucklehead cuts me off on the highway. Don't know what a rearview mirror is. Don't know what a blinker is. Right? And I don't have to do or say anything, but there can be some really ugly thoughts getting in my head, right? Or as Jesus taught us, and Jesus taught us about, uh, 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 about that the, the lamp of the body is the eye. And that In Matthew chapter 5, there in verse number 22. Or earlier in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21 and 22 when he said, Whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's not something a man did. That's not something a man said. But it is something that a man saw and a man thought. And that would be a sin, wouldn't it? Not one time. Not one time did Jesus ever let a thought get in his head that was contrary to the will of God. Jesus made a statement in John 8 and verse 29 that I wish I could make. And I think it's a statement that every child of God certainly wishes that they could make. And here's what Jesus said in John 8:29. I always do those things that please my Father. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say that? I always do those things that please my Father. So when I say nobody ever lived like Jesus, I mean it. Nobody ever lived like Jesus lived. But then number three. No one ever taught like Jesus taught. No one ever taught like Jesus taught. Again, John 7 and verse 46, no man ever spoke. Somebody's teaching. No one ever spoke before like this man. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, when you get to the end of what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that they were astonished at his teaching for he taught as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. In other words, he did not, as the scribes would do, he did not cite someone else's teaching to support his own teaching. By the way, nothing inherently wrong with that. Nothing inherently wrong with that. I mean, who who among us has not been blessed by the work of somebody that wrote a good commentary? or even a good Bible dictionary, or a lexicon, or something, or a bulletin article. We can always be blessed from the scholarship of somebody else, but ultimately they are not the authority, even though we may claim or cite them as such. The Bible says Jesus taught as one having authority. About five times in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, You've heard it said, what? But I say. You've heard it said, not, but such and such rabbi said. You have heard it said, but I say. And then also this, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. Inextricably joined to Jesus' teaching was Jesus' doing. Because Jesus would first do and then teach. Right? Of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, Acts 1 and verse 1. You read Matthew chapter 4 beginning in verse uh, 22 where Jesus was healing people. In other words, the, the, the precursor to the Sermon on the Mount and the gathered multitudes was Jesus healing people. So Jesus began first to do and then to teach. Now it's, a, it's, a, it's an old saying but, and it may sound trifling but it's still true that people don't care how much you know what? till they know how much you care and Jesus was never at a shortage letting people know how much he cared he taught Mark 6 and verse 2 with great wisdom great wisdom you know again it's, a, it's one thing it's one thing to say the right thing it's another thing to say the right thing in the right way And it's another to say the right thing in the right way at the right time. That's where the wisdom comes in. Look, anybody can have knowledge, right? Anybody can open up the Bible and have knowledge of what the Bible says, but it takes wisdom to teach it and to do it properly. Now, Jesus is oftentimes referred to as the master teacher. Now, any particular teacher can be a good and effective teacher. I know. I know a little bit about teachers. All right. My wife is a school teacher. My daughter is a school teacher. My son is a school teacher. My son-in-law is a school teacher. My stepdad is a school teacher. I know a little bit about teachers. Know a little bit about teachers. And we all know that a person can be a good teacher. But what separates the good teacher from the great teacher? It's the ability to use or utilize other methods of teaching. In other words, some teachers are great teachers because they have mastered, they have mastered a particular way of teaching. And that's their go-to way of teaching. But the truly great teacher is the teacher that can. Help students learn by utilizing other means of teaching, and Jesus utilized every means of teaching. You ever thought about that? In other words, Jesus was just not—Jesus was just not a guy who stood behind the pulpit and lectured people all day long. Now that can be an effective way of teaching, right? But it's not the only way of teaching. And in some cases, it may not be the most effective way of teaching. But Jesus utilized all manner and methods of teaching. Think about this. The very first one, repetition. Repetition. I just saw this man two weeks ago. I was uh, preaching a a funeral in Missouri back in my hometown. A friend of mine had passed away. And and, uh, this man is a deacon in the congregation where I grew up. He's also was is the retired band teacher. And here's what he always said in in band class. He said, there's three ways to learn repetition, repetition, and repetition. And I I mentioned that to him two weeks ago and it just brought a smile to his face. He said, you remembered one thing I taught you. (laughs) But Jesus used repetition. For example, over and over and over and over again Jesus kept telling his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die and be raised the third day he said it in Matthew 16 he said it in Matthew 17 he said it in Matthew 20 over and over again he kept telling them that. and by the way did they get it no they didn't get it even after you know, after he was dead what did Peter say I'm going fishing by the way, he wasn't, talking, he wasn't talking about just like me going fishing, just a guy going to go sit on the creek bank and fish. He talking about, I'm going back to my old job. He didn't get it. But Jesus repeatedly talked about his death and his burial and his resurrection, and they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. But Jesus used repetition. And by the way, you think about Jesus preaching. Jesus wasn't like me and Lee see me and Lee got to come up with something new every Sunday right we don't get to take 10 or 15 or 20 sermons and just preach those 10 or 15 or 20 sermons over and over and over again we got to come up with something every single week morning and night but Jesus had a particular message that needed to be heard by everybody and so, because he wasn't preaching to the same people every single day, he had to preach that same message over and over and over and over. Now, it was not only a benefit to the, obviously the people who heard it the first time, but it was also a benefit to the 12 that walked and heard it over. How many, you know, how many times do you think the disciples, the apostles, heard the Sermon on the Mount? That material. Ain't no telling how many times they heard that material. No t- and yet right before Jesus died He said I'm going to send the Spirit and He's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've said to you which I find interesting because you would think they would have had all those sermons memorized by then right you know, if, you hear the same, you know, if you hear the same 15 or 20 sermons and you hear them 100 times it's like listening to a song right you know, pretty soon you know all the words they needed some help, but he did teach by repetition. But then, number two, he taught in what is called narrative, which is is a is a growing, it's growing in popularity narrative preaching. In other words, to to, to, to tell a story of sorts, but it's a story that has a story that has a spiritual message. By the way, you know, the the, uh, uh, the parables are narrative type teaching. In other words, he tells a story, but there's a message behind. There's a message behind the message, the story. In other words, there's something spiritual behind what appears uh, to be uh, physical, uh, and so you have uh, the, the narrative uh, lessons. Then you have what I sometimes refer to as the shock effect. You know, sometimes people say things for for the shock value. Now, some people sometimes do it just to be ornery. But sometimes you can say things that are shocking to people in order to to jar them out of their spiritual slumber and open their eyes to some new realities. How about this? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That one didn't go over very well, did it? Didn't go over very well. You know how I know that? Because at the end of John 6, when Jesus said that, it said many of his disciples turned and walked with him no more. That would be a shocking statement, wouldn't it? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That was a shocking statement. Now, and we'll, Lord willing here in just a few moments, we'll talk about some other shocking statements that Jesus made. Uh, for example, in, um, in Matthew 7 and verse 5, Do not give that which is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls before a swine. That was a shocking, a shocking statement. And so, by the way, lots of shocking statements in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. That's a shocking statement, right? And and again, all the things where Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say. Those are all statements that would shock people to hear a man say what he said. And so it's it's a, 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 a proven and effective, can be an effective teaching method. In other words, shocking people. Then you have what's called the Socratic method, asking questions, Socrates. In other words, you ask a question, and then when the answer is given, then you ask a follow-up question. And then when that answer is given, you ask a follow-up. In other words, you start asking questions until you get it right down to what you're really wanting to try to teach. It's called the Socratic method. And Jesus used the Socratic method. By the way, on the, in the foyer right here, I, I keep seeing fishers of men. Have y'all ever had the class here, Fishers of Men? I've taught the class probably 10 times. I'm, I was, went through it in 99 or 2000. I've probably taught it 10 or 11 times. You know. But the one thing that we learn in Fishers and Men is ask questions and answer questions with questions. And Jesus did that, right? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? That's a question. What's the answer? Whose picture's on the money? Right? In other words, ask a question, ask a question in return. By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? The baptism of John, where did it come from? Heaven or men? Answer a question with a question. the uh, 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 The Christ, whose son is he? Jesus asked they said the son of david so then jesus followed that with another question then how is it david in the spirit referred to him as his lord see the socratic method asking questions to get right down to the nitty gritty get right down to to the heart of the matter and asking questions is a very very effective method to teach. now i'm not talking about asking questions to be to play devil's advocate you know because some people refuse to be taught, and all they want to do is just ask a bunch of foolish questions. they can't stay on topic in other words, you pin them down on one thing and they're you know they're as slippery as an eel in a bucket of grease. you know you just you just can't you can't even can't even hold them hold them in one spot they're going to jump somewhere else. I'm not talking about people that ask questions like that I'm talking about people that ask genuine questions that want to learn they don't they're not offended by having questions asked because they see. That these, this series of questions is getting me w- where I really want to be. Then you have the rhetorical method. Rhetoric simply means to build a case. To build a case. You know, just, 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 just build your case. Uh, in, Matthew, in Matthew 22, uh, you know, Jesus built his case against the Sadducees about the, the matter of the resurrection. You know you know whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For they all had her to wife. He said, "You do her." Boy, that's a, that was stung them. Not knowing the scriptures, there's another sting. Nor the power of God. And Then he built his case on the resurrection, on, for the resurrection. You see? So that's the rhetorical method. And by the way, that's what most of us. That's what most of us do in our general conversations. You know, if we want to have a conversation about. Just, just, I'm just going to mention some mundane things. Right? If we're going to... Like, who, you know, who is the greatest boxer of all time? All right, a, a, a number of people may have a number of different opinions about who's the greatest boxer of all time. All right? So what does a man do to prove the boxer's the His idea. Well, he's going to tell the man's record. He's going to tell, you know, how many knockouts he had, and, and how many fights, and how long he was the champ, or, or, or how, you know, in other words, you might make the case for Muhammad Ali, or you might make the case for, for Sugar Ray Robinson, or you might make the case for Rocky Marciano, you know, or, you know, just in other words, but what do you you build the case, you build the case, and that's what most of us do in our general ideas and and conversations, and it's certainly right and proper to do that and talk about the Bible, build a case, and by the way. Don't let anybody accuse you falsely by saying well, you're a proof texter. You're just a proof texter. You know what? There ain't but one way to prove anything in the Bible, and that's proof texting. Isn't that right? If the Bible doesn't say it, you can't teach it. And if the Bible does say it, you got to have a text to prove it There ain't but one way to teach anything about what the Bible says, and that's proof text preaching. Proof text preaching. All right? And so that's building the case. And lastly, object lessons. Object lessons. Visual. Behold the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say to you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Behold the fowls of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Behold the fields are white unto harvest. So Jesus used object lessons. And by the way, sometimes he used people as object lessons. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19. Matthew 18. Except you become, be converted and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Visual lessons. Visual object lessons. So Jesus was the master teacher because Jesus could utilize every form of teaching that there was and use it masterfully to perfection. That's why Jesus is the master teacher. No one ever talked like Jesus. Then number four, no one ever loved like Jesus. Greater love has no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15. But Jesus did more than that. He laid down his life for his enemies. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and verse number six. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, Paul spoke of the love of Christ. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Not just the the person of Christ, not just the teaching of Christ. The love of Christ compels us. Which, by the way, Paul follows up with. He died. His love compels us because he loved us enough to die for us. So no one ever loved like Jesus loved. But then uh, number five, no one ever sacrificed like Jesus. No one ever sacrificed like Jesus did. For example, he said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 6 and verse 38. I've come down. By the way, we understand that verse in saying I've come down in in the idea that The heavens are way up here and the earth is way down here so He comes from up to down. But He came down in a lot of other ways too, didn't He? What does Philippians 2 teach us about Christ? He thought not equality with God a thing to be grasped. The text says, King James says, He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But the text indicates that he did not consider his equality with God a thing to be held on to, with all of his might. In other words, God didn't have to kick Jesus, you know, kicking and screaming out of heaven. You know, it wasn't like Jesus was on the edge of heaven, holding on, you know, holding on to the edge of the walls because he didn't want to go to earth, and God had to stomp his fingers to let him make him let go. Now Jesus gave it up. He willingly. By the way, he willingly became a man. Now, are there any words to describe how far it would be for a man to come from being God to being a man? Is there any way to describe leaving a home in heaven with the worship of angels and coming down and being despised by sinful human beings? There are no words to describe that the sacrifice of Christ look, look if Jesus had left heaven and come to earth and had the money of Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos Warren Buffett, and every oil baron in the Middle East if he had come down from heaven and had all of that money it would still be indescribable to talk about how far he'd come down think sometimes we don't appreciate that because we don't think about it enough. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick something in your head that will make your head hurt. Y'all ready? I believe that Jesus gave up some things to come to earth that He never got back when He went to heaven. Now you let that boil and simmer for a little while Say what do you mean Todd what do you mean Jesus gave up some things that he never got back well the Bible says that when we die and when the Lord comes back and we go to heaven that he's going to change our vile bodies that they may be conformed to his glorious body Philippians chapter 3 right in other words and John said we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is now when I get to heaven am I going to be God am I going to be God when I get to heaven I'm going to be like Jesus right so what's that tell me it tells me Jesus is not right now what he used to be is that right If I'm going to be like Him and my body's going to be like His body when I get to heaven, Jesus is not right now what He was before He left heaven. He's spoken of as being at the right hand of God. By the way, the Bible never talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God until after His ascension. Now what does it mean to be at the right hand of God? that's not equality that's not full equality to be at the right hand of God you know you 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 might work for me and you might be my right hand man but you ain't the man right and by the way again after his ascension it is said of him there is one God and one mediator between God and man who who Not just Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus. He's still spoken of as being man, even though he's since ascended and gone into heaven. Now you think about the sacrifice that he made there, that he never got back. I'm not saying what I just told you is absolutely so, but I want you to think about it because that's what I believe. And it magnifies the sacrifice that Jesus made. And then, number six nobody ever died like Jesus. Nobody ever died like Jesus. Again, not talking about the way he died, people got crucified every day in the first century. He said the Son of Man must be lifted up, John chapter uh, uh, 3 and verse 14. John 8 and verse 28. When you see the Son of Man lifted up, John 12, 32. But Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. And not just the sins of the whole world, but for the sins of every individual. The sins of every single individual. Number seven, I'm running out of time. That's why I'm trying to hurry. Nobody was ever raised like Jesus. Anybody ever raised from the dead before Jesus? Anybody ever in the Bible ever raised from the dead? Oh yeah, lots of them. Again, the woman that got the child in the days of Elisha, her son died. They brought him back to life, right? I mean, uh, The man that died and they threw him in the grave and he fell on Elisha's bones and he came back to life. lots of people raised from the dead in the the biblical record but Jesus was raised Jesus was raised in in a number of ways but first of all he foretold his resurrection he said I'm going to die and I'm going to be living again in three days mark it down by the way if that were not true there would be no Christianity today isn't that right? And by the way, there is no way, let me just say this, there is no way that Jesus is not raised from the dead. And I don't mean that just from the standpoint of what the Bible says. I mean that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, it would have been proven in the days of Jesus that He wasn't raised from the dead. Right? And Christianity would have been squashed before it ever got started so no one was ever raised like Jesus he predicted uh, his resurrection he was raised with undeniable proof Acts 1 and verse 3 500 witnesses 1 Corinthians 15 Romans 1 says he was declared the son of God by the resurrection Then lastly this one nobody's ever going to return like Jesus who made the the most famous return statement who made the most famous one in American history Douglas MacArthur I shall return right and he did but just to make sure everybody saw it they put the TV cameras on the beach so they could show MacArthur walking through knee deep water you remember remember the images I shall return and they had to have a television camera to prove it but Jesus ain't gonna need no TV camera because when Jesus comes back the Bible says every eye is gonna see him which in and of itself will be a miracle Because you can't see the whole side of a basketball at one time. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Because not everybody on the earth can see the sun at the same time. Not everybody on earth can see the moon at the same time. But when Jesus comes back, every eye shall see Him. Nobody will ever return like that. He's going to return in the same way that He came, Acts chapter 1. The one you've seen going up in the heavens in the clouds will come back in the clouds with the clouds behold he cometh with clouds Revelation uh, chapter uh, chapter 1 and verse 7 and every eye shall see he's going to come back and judge the living and the dead 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 he's going to judge the whole world and every man will be judged by his works and according to the words of Christ no one will ever return like Jesus returned alright so folks there's who Jesus is in a nutshell we could spend two weeks every night talking about this That's who Jesus is. Lord willing, here in just a few moments, I'm going to tell you what Jesus said. Thank you all for being here and for your good attention.